Gresham College presents Early Science and Historical Perspective, the second part, including The Early Days of Gresham College by Professor Robin Wilson of the Open University and Pembroke College and Emeritus Gresham Professor of Geometry. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, before I discourse on the Gresham Geometry Professors, I beg your indulgence while I introduce myself. I was born in the parish of Halifax in Yorkshire in the year 1561. After receiving my education in Greek and Latin at a grammar school in the country, I was sent to St John's College in Cambridge University in 1577 and admitted a scholar two years after. In the year 1581, I took the degree of Bachelor of Arts, that of Master after four years, and was chosen a Fellow of the College in 1588. My chief study was the mathematics, in which I excelled, and I was made examiner and lecturer in that faculty. In this presentation, I shall outline the history of the Gresham Professors of Geometry from the earliest, myself, uh, to Robert Hooke, uh, possibly the most distinguished among them. All these professors are well documented in John Ward's Lives of the Professors of Gresham College, published in 1740. In most cases, we know little about the actual lectures uh, the professors gave. Although the archives contain much useful information, there is little mention of their mathematical interests. Consequently, much of my talk will be centred more on the history of the college itself, but placed in the context of the geometry professors. For the college's history, I have relied on several sources, especially Ward's book, mentioned earlier, and the brief history by Richard Charters, and David Vermont, produced for the college's 400th anniversary in 1997. The Gresham professorships arose from the will of Sir Thomas Gresham. Born in 1519, he was admitted to the Mercer's Company in 1543 and later became master of that company. Edward VI appointed him royal agent in Antwerp, one of the major commercial centres of Europe, where he amassed a huge fortune. And impressed by the Antwerp Bourse, Gresham offered to pay for a similar exchange in London if the city corporation would provide the site. And here's a Victorian painting uh, entitled Sir Thomas Gresham's Gift of the Royal Exchange to the City of London and the Mercer's Company. The exchange, the centre of commerce in the city, opened in 1566 and was proclaimed royal when Queen Elizabeth visited it around 1570. In 1575, Sir Thomas made a will giving half of the royal exchange and all the pawns and shops therein to the mayor and citizens of London and the other half to the Mercer's Company. And these groups were to provide £50 per year for each of seven professors to give free public lectures in the college reading hall in divinity, astronomy, music and geometry, all to be nominated by the corporation, and law, physic and rhetoric to be nominated by the Mercer's Company within his dwelling house uh, in Bishopsgate Street. We were required to remain unmarried and a suite of apartments was provided for each of us. These seven Gresham professorships exist to this day, and a new one, a chair of commerce, was added in 1985. 
Sir Thomas Gresham died in 1579, but his wife survived him for a further 17 years. So it was not until 1596 that the corporation and the Mercer's Company came into possession of the Royal Exchange and Gresham's House, which became known as Gresham College. As the Ballad of Gresham College later described it, if to be rich and to be learned be every nation's chiefest glory, how much are English men concerned, Gresham, to celebrate thy story, who built the exchange to enrich the city and a college founded for the witty. From the beginning, Gresham College encouraged the practical sciences of navigation, trade, commerce, manufacturing and medicine, rather than the Aristotelian studies still pursued at the ancient universities. Thy college, Gresham, shall hereafter be the whole world's university. Oxford and Cambridge are our laughter. Their learning is but pedantry. These new collegiates do assure us Aristotle's an ass to Epicurus. It was laid down that the solemn lectures of astronomy and geometry were to be read twice every week, with astronomy on Friday and geometry on Thursday between the hours of 8 and 9 in the forenoon, that was in Latin, and 2 and 3 in the afternoon in English. The, geometri the geometrician is to read as followeth, viz. every trinity term arithmetic, in Michaelmas and Hillary terms theor theoretical geometry, in Easter term practical geometry. The astronomer read astronomy reader is to read in his solemn lectures first the principles of the sphere and the theory of the planets and the use of the astrolabe and the staff and other common instru instruments for the capacity of mariners, which having read and opened, he shall apply them to use by reading geography and the art of navigation in some one term of every year. I was appointed the first professor of geometry in 1596 at a salary of £50 a year and occupied my college rooms there uh, at the far right hand of the quadrangle. There I worked on navigation and on tables for finding the height of the pole star. By 1610 I was studying eclipses and five years later I was wholly taken up with the noble invention of logarithms lately discovered by John Napier of Edinburgh, who, I recall, set my head and hands at work with his new and remarkable logarithms. I never saw a book which pleased me better or made me more wonder. But unfortunately, his logarithms are cumbersome. For example, the logarithm of 1 was not 0. Log of a, b was log of a plus log of b minus log of 1. And myself, when expounding this doctrine publicly in London to my auditors in Gresham College, remarked that it would be much more convenient that zero should be kept for the logarithm of the whole sign. So I made two extended visits to Edinburgh to discuss such matters with Napier. The result of these deliberations was that while still at Gresham College, I devised a new form of logarithm based on the number 10, in which to multiply two numbers together, one simply adds their logarithms. In my Arithmetica Logarithmica, um, I published extensive calculations of the logarithms of 30,000 numbers, which I had calculated by hand to 14 decimal places. And this proved to be an invaluable aid for mariners 
and navigators. In 1619, Sir Henry Saville, warden of Merton College in Oxford University, founded professorships in geometry and astronomy in Oxford. They were designed for persons of character and repute from any part of Christendom, well skilled in mathematics and 26 years of age. Sir Henry offered the former to myself, which I accepted, and I became his first professor of geometry. Sir Henry had himself for some time discharged that province and read 13 lectures upon the first eight propositions of Euclid's elements before surrendering the chair to me, saying, I hand on the lamp to my successor, a most learned man who will lead you into the inmost mysteries of geometry. The week following, I began my lectures with the ninth proposition of Euclid where Sir Henry had left off. However, I continued to hold my professorship at Gresham College until July 1620, before resigning it. My place at Gresham College was taken by Peter Turner, the first of four successive Mertonians to hold the post. Turner had been Fellow of Merton since 1607 and was described by the antiquary Anthony Wood as a most excellent Latinist and Grecian, well-skilled in Hebrew and Arabic, a thorough-paced mathematician, a most curious critic, a politician, statesman, statesman, and what not. Unfortunately, he was severely self-critical about his work and destroyed nearly all that he wrote. Meanwhile, Edmund Gunter, who had failed to get the Oxford chair awarded to me, became Grisham Professor of Astronomy, and Gunter was famous for his measuring instruments, such as Gunter's Quadrant and the Gunter Sector. In January 1631, after my greatly exaggerated demise, as you can see, I'm still here, uh, Peter Turner was appointed civilian professor in Oxford in my place. At the outbreak of civil war, he enlisted with the Royalists and was captured in a skirmish near Stow-in-the-Wold and imprisoned for over a year in Northampton Jail. In 1648, he was ousted from his Oxford post by the parliamentary visitors and died a few years after. Turner's place at Gresham College was taken by another Mertonian, John Greaves. He had a taste for natural philosophy and mathematics, and studied ancient Greek, Arabic, and Persian writers on astronomy, besides the more recent work of Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, and Kepler. Shortly after being appointed at Gresham College, Greaves began to travel, first in Europe, and then for four years around the Mediterranean and the Middle East. He measured the great pyramids of Giza with diverse mathematical instruments, took astrolabe observations in Rhodes, collected Greek, Arabic, and Persian manuscripts for his patron, Archbishop Lord, arranged sightings of the 1638 eclipse of the moon from four different locations, and collected coins, gems, and other valuable curiosities. His pioneering researches on the pyramids led to his most celebrated book, The Pyramidographia, published in 1646. Not surprisingly, these long absences and neglect of his lectures did not please the Gresham authorities. Shortly after his return, he was deposed from the, from the Gresham chair 
and became civilian professor of astronomy in Oxford following the, the death of John Bainbridge. In 1648, he was dejected from his Oxford chair by the parliamentary visitors, losing many of his valuable books and manuscripts in the process. His replacement at Gresham College was Ralph Button, a noted Merton tutor and parliamentarian who was unwilling to bear arms for the king when civil war broke out. Uh, Anthony Wood was much displeased with him, describing Button as unworthy of the Gresham post. But another writer called him an excellent scholar, but of greater excellency, a most humble, worthy, godly man of a pl plain, sincere heart and blameless. Button resigned his Gresham post in 1648, returning to Oxford to help the parliamentary visitors in their reforms. And when the Earl of Pembroke made public entry to Oxford, proceeding on horseback to Merton, it was Ralph Button as proctor who welcomed him with a Latin's. Latin speech. The last Mertonian to assume the Gresham chair was Daniel Whistler. After taking medical doctorates in Leiden and Oxford, he wrote the first ever book on rickets, which he called Pidos Planched Nostiocarces, but unsurprisingly, this name never caught on. <laughs> In 1648, being well-skilled in the mathematics, he was elected to the Gresham chair. And although Whistler was considered agreeable by Samuel Pepys, who often supped with him, in fact, they watched the Great Fire together in 1666, others were less flattering. The diarist John Evelyn considered him the most facetious man in nature, while William Monk's celebrated history of the College of Physicians remarked that Whistler was appointed president of that body in an evil hour. Continuing, it is all too, all too evident that duty, honour and probity weighed but lightly with him. He took advantage of his position as president to defraud the college over which he presided, but in what precise manner or to what extent is not recorded. And Monk concluded, a portrait of Dr. Whistler is in the college in company too good for his deserts. In 1657, Whistler married and by the terms of the Gresham will had to resign from Gresham College. His successor was Lawrence Rook, already resident in the college uh, as professor of astronomy, a post he had held for five years. Rook exchanged his astronomy post for the chair of geometry, possibly to obtain better rooms, and lectured on William Outred's algebra text, Clavis Mathematicae, the key to mathematics. Rook's Gresham, Gresham, Gresham colleague, Walter Pope, describes him as the greatest man in England for solid learning. And although, being of a melancholy temper and aspect, his eyes sunk of a hoarse voice and much subject to the scurvy, he was profoundly skilled in all sorts of learning, not excepting botanics and music and the abstrusest points of divinity, though astronomy was his favourite study. Rook's astronomy position was taken by the young Christopher Wren, also an enthusiast for mathematics. In his inaugural lecture at Gresham College, Wren generously praised me describing the useful invention of logarithms as wholly a British art which at Gresham College received great additions. 
and observing that London was particularly favoured with so general a relish of mathematics and a liberal philosophia in such measure as is hardly to be found in the academies themselves. Wren concluded, mathematical demonstrations being built upon the impregnable foundations of geometry and arithmetic are the only truths that can sink into the mind of man void of all uncertainty. And all other discourses participate more or less of truth according as their subjects are more or less capable of mathematical demonstration. At this time, Oxford reappears in our story. Rook had spent some time at Wadham College assisting Robert Boyle in his chemical operations and attending meetings of learned and curious gentlemen in the rooms of John Wilkins, Warden of Wadham. I won't say too much about Wadham because that is the topic of the next talk, but when Rook moved to Gresham College, many of his Oxford associates, John Wilkins, Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke and others, visited London to attend his lectures and discourse afterwards in his rooms. And on the 28th of November, 1660, uh, following a Gresham lecture by Christopher Wren, the Oxford group proposed the formation of a society. The society, later the Royal Society, met weekly in Rook's rooms at Gresham College. In 1662, just a few days before the society received its royal charter, um, Rook died from a fever caused when he overheat himself and caught cold upon it while walking home from a visit to Highgate on the very night he was to make the last of a lengthy series of observations extending over several years on the satellites of Jupiter. Rook's industry and judgment were praised by his successor, the Cambridge mathematician Isaac Barrow. Barrow was appointed on the recommendation of Wilkins. He'd been one of the earliest to investigate the inverse relationship between the two halves of the calculus that we now call differentiation and integration. He held the Gresham chair for two years before returning to Cambridge as the first Lucasian professor of mathematics, the post later held by Isaac Newton and more recently by Stephen Hawking. The shortest-serving Gresham Professor of Geometry is Barrow's successor, Arthur Dakers. John Ward writes, Upon Mr. Barrow's resignation of the Geometry Professorship in Gresham College, the Royal Society, who met there, were very desirous that Mr. Robert Hooke, one of their members and curator of their experiments, might be chosen to succeed him, since by that means he would be near at hand to attend that service with greater readiness for them and less trouble to himself. But Dr. Dakers was a competitor with Mr. Hooke, and the election being declared for the doctor May the 20th, 1664, he was accordingly admitted, but resigned again upon the 20th of March following, and was succeeded by Hooke. So for the last five minutes, I'd like to tell you about Robert Hooke. I won't say too much, because we'll be hearing more about him this afternoon. But Robert Hooke was best known for his work with Robert Boyle on the air, air pump, for his invention of the microscope, and for Hooke's law on the extension of springs. As curator of experiments for the Royal Society, he was for many years required to design and present experiments to the public on a regular basis, including inventing the apparatus and having it constructed. Alan Chapman, our next speaker, has described him as the greatest experimenter who ever lived, like Leonardo da Vinci, but better organized. <coughs> 
In his diary, Samuel Pepys wrote of Mr. Hook, who is the most and promises the least of any man in the world that I ever saw. He had a meagre aspect, and there were bitter disputes with Isaac Newton and others. But he seems to have carried out his Gresham responsibilities conscientiously for over 35 years, making the college an important centre for scientific research and, and debate. The Royal Society appreciated the conveniency of making their experiments in the place where their curator dwells and the apparatus is, on, is, on, is at hand, and the Gresham authorities gave him £40 uh, to erect a turret from which he could make his astronomical observations. Shortly after Hooke's appointment, the City of London was ablaze. Most of it was destroyed in the Great Fire, including Gresham's Royal Exchange, but the college narrowly escaped and became a temporary exchange with the Lord Mayor living in the Divinity Professor's lodgings, the Mercer's Company displacing the Law Professor, and so on. It was all exceedingly cramped, and the Royal Society moved out until the Royal Exchange was rebuilt at great expense and things returned to normal. Throughout this period, Hooke did the greatest part of his work as city surveyor and was permitted to keep his rooms at Gresham College. And on their return in 1673, the members of the Royal Society were welcomed back with Rhenish wine and macaroons, a tradition that continues to this day for history of mathematics lectures at the college. <coughs> However, it was not a good time for, for the college, being a case of professors behaving badly. Many of them, though not Hook, regularly failed to give their lectures or presented them badly. The citizens of London soon lost interest in the lectures, as some entries in Hook's diaries of the 1670s record. No auditory came morning or afternoon, so I read not. No lecture, but a rusty old fellow walked in the hall from two until almost three. Only one came, peeped into the hall, but stayed not. Indeed, a group of citizens were later to bring a petition against the professors, complaining that when they turned up for lectures, they found themselves disappointed and nothing performed, or at least but seldom and in such an indifferent manner when they did, as if the professors desired to have no company to attend them, but be wholly exempt, as they formerly had been from taking any pains at all. Matters came to a head in 1699, Rebuilding the Royal Exchange had been costly and proposals were made uh, to save money by redesigning the college on a smaller scale. Parliament was petitioned for approval with only Robert Hooke, now frail and the only professor resident in the college, holding out against the plans. The bill failed, but further attempts were made after Hooke's death in 1703. Isaac Newton, who became president of the Royal Society in that year, also joined in the fray, petitioning Queen Anne for land on which the society could build. Around 1710, the Royal Society moved to Crane Court and the Gresham residence survived for a further 60 years before being demolished. But that's another story. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk